podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Shall we start with our Patreon questions? Uh, a lot to get through today, so uh, let us uh, hit the track running. Take an early wicket. Um, score off the first ball, whatever analogy that you have coming to mind. Surf says, looking at Elgus, four-plus dismissals caught behind a legside versus Australia. Is that a new thing for him, or has there been a similar pattern before? I got the feeling that started against England, and I can't remember if, because India, I don't remember India trying it. But my memory is that there was a time when England were looking at it as well. I don't know if they had as much success as Australia with it, uh, but I do feel that Elga has done that. So, you know, that's one of the things with advanced analytics that we could do now. We know that there are certain players who struggle to get out of the way of balls and that they're, I suppose, their gloves maybe, but but also the, the way that they play down the leg side. It's not that hard if you're an analyst to see that as a recurring pattern. Even if someone's not being dismissed on it a few times, I think it's certainly something that you could see. So... We might see going ahead more and more situations where teams try strategies like that against um, certain batters, just because, especially in the case of Elga, we're talking about someone who, uh, I'm trying to think of how many balls he would have faced in Test cricket. It's a lot. He would have faced a lot. 10,000 balls, probably more than that now, um, in Test cricket. And so we have so much data on him that you might see plans like that. But yeah, my memory was that England was the first ones to have a go at that. Um, uh, and I... Get the feeling he went out once. Um, probably England or South African fans might remember a little bit better than me. Uh, but that was the first time I went, ah, oh, that's interesting. Um, rather than maybe occasionally seeing teams go at his body, not thinking that it was a specific plan beforehand. Burn says, uh, how do you rate Australia's chances of winning the Board Gavaska Trophy? Low. Um, seems like Pat Cummins has the personnel to conquer the final frontier this year, assuming the pitchers are prepared sportingly. Well, I wouldn't expect they would be prepared sportingly. I don't know why you would play against Australia if you were India and allow them to have, um, uh, you know, seam bowling friendly pitches or even flat pitches. You probably want to test them out against spin, especially with, you know, some left handers there. That said, you know, I just I don't see Australia as being quite good enough to win consistently against India. I suppose the big question mark is India's batting um, at home. Generally, they've been good, good enough against most of the teams. Um, I certainly think Australia can win a test. I don't know if they're prepared as well as they did in 2016, um, I, but I think they're a better team than they were in 2016. They still don't really have a secondary spinner that is going to bother India at all. Um, Cameron Green is the one variable that I'm interested about. I'm not expecting him to take a lot of wickets, but it does allow Australia to, uh, you know, change up their, their lineups. The one thing I would say about that is that would have worked a lot better if they had a secondary spinner who they were absolutely positive about. Um, uh, you know, uh, so they've got, uh, Agar, Todd Murphy, uh, and, and Swepson. So Todd Murphy probably doesn't bowl unless Lyon gets injured, I, I would assume. Oh, unless they think he's incredible. He's very, very, very young, of course. Very, very new. Um, Agar will be okay, but, you know, he's not as good as Jack Leach, for instance. Um, he's not as good as Keshev Maharaj. Um, so I'm not expecting, you know, anything special from that perspective. Uh, Swepson is more interesting, but I do think that, I think if we look at the, the history of, you know, slower leg spinners in India, they don't... They don't put as much pressure on. I think you need to be a little bit quicker through the air in India um, if you're going to be a wrist spinner just because of the way that the pitchers handle spin. So, again, uh, I'm not expecting any of those uh, to make a big damage. It really does come down to the seamers. That would seem to be an easier thing to nullify if the Indians want to do it. Um, but I also just think that, you know, Ashwin versus the left hand is, is also a big problem for Australia. I, I think Australia versus high-quality spin, when was the last time Australia played high-quality spin? 
been in Asia, I'm trying to think back to when they were in the UAE against West Indies, uh, West Indies against Pakistan. So I think it's very tough for them to say that they're suddenly going to uh, win that series. But, you know, they should be in it. They're a good team. Oh, sorry, Renee. Renee says, when will we see uh, Sachin Tendulkar-like career again? Someone who gets into a top international team at 16 years old. Uh, will any team take a risk of getting someone so young or will never happen again? I wouldn't say it will never happen again. I think the chances are now, and this is not taking anything away from Sachin, because in his era it made sense. I really wonder what would have happened if, if you had a player now as talented as him, and we haven't seen anyone come in, so it's a bit tricky, or certainly no one that instantly springs to my mind. But if we saw someone as talented as him start as early as he did with the fact that we have, you know, video um, and analysis and everything else, because we have seen with with very, very good players, certainly not on Sachin's level, but with very, very good players, it took about an innings of Matt Renshaw to realise what the problems were with Matt Renshaw. Um, and, And I still think Matt Renshaw should come back a better player and i do wonder if that is you know the same with someone like zach crawley um hamid um, i'm trying to think of some of the other really really young players who have played uh around the world and and i think from that perspective it might be tougher now you know as someone who watches a lot of basketball you watch the rookies come in in basketball and you can see that they're going to be good in three years time five years time and that they're already maybe productive players but you can also see now how easy it is to exploit them in different ways because they're oh okay well he can't do this so we'll just run this uh, move against him whereas before we had proper video analysis or data analysis that was really hard to find out and you may not scheme for you know the the young player in the same way um you just try and put pressure on them emotionally um you know through sledging or through you know through high high quality cricket and we know that Someone like Sachin wouldn't have a problem with that, but would he have had a problem with something else? Now, he didn't have as many um, technical issues. Having said that, it would be interesting to see early on if he did and he had to develop the way that most players do. Players usually become a little bit more rounded, um, if, if especially on his level. Um, so from that perspective, I don't know. I would be shocked if no one tried it again, whether we'll ever see anyone be successful. Uh, and, and then they maybe it just it comes down to the fact they'll just have to be as good a player as him. I mean, Steve Smith was not successful when he first came into the team. My memory of Kane Williamson was his batting average took a while to develop. I, I might be wrong there as well. Alistair Cook started very well, then had regression, and then got better again. It's really hard when you're young um, starting in Test cricket. One of the more interesting things is a lot of players don't play a lot of three and four day cricket. Before you know, if, if you're if you're like Sachin, you're not playing a lot of three and four day cricket now. If you're coming through, so you would be. It's even harder. I would have thought you were almost dumping them in at, um, into the game. Will says, "Is the list of best batting orders? Um, oh, sorry, in the list of best batting orders, where would you rank the Flower era, England, Cook, Strauss, Trot, Peterson, Cal- uh, Bell, Collingwood, Pryor? Um, it was very good at its peak." I mean, Strauss is not is is an above average test opener, but he's certainly not one of the best test openers of all time. Trot, very very good in that you know, great in that small window. I'm trying to think how long it was. Was it 2019 or It's not a long period. Again, uh, Peterson, outstanding. Uh, you know, I think if you also factor in the effect that he had on opposition teams, Bell probably not quite as good as Peterson. Collingwood again, I would have thought is you know, probably more on that Strauss level. And Pryor was certainly above average. So it's very, very good. I don't think it, you know, I'm probably, you know, hopefully uh, none of the people I know on this list <laughs> are watching um, at the moment. Uh, I could just imagine Andrew Strauss, you know, um, asking his friends to get my number to send me a very ordinary thing. But I do know a couple of those players, obviously. I, I don't think it's one of the all-time um, list, but I think it's a really, I think it's a very deep, if, if let's say Collingwood or Strauss is the worst batter there, that's a very, very solid, longer list. Um, I think what we – I can't remember the question the other day. might have been about top fours or top fives. Um, this goes a little bit deeper than that. You know, I, I don't think it compares to, you know, the Australian uh, teams that go back to number seven, for instance, or uh, perhaps some of the South African teams are back to number seven. Some of the early, what, 1950s England teams who probably had um, – or maybe they didn't have as strong a player at number seven. Also, the, one other question I would be very interested there is how often that particular six bat played together. It doesn't feel like it was that often. Uh, James says, people often credit the courage of the helmet 
era batters who don't wear them, uh, example, Viv Richards, Richie Richardson, do you think that is justified? Or the fact that those batters opted not to wear helmets, even though they're available, indicate that those batters are really con- weren't really conceding an advantage? Yeah, I, I don't credit the courage of those players because as someone... So I grew up slightly uh, after that era. And when I grew up in Australian cricket, I think the rule in junior cricket in Victoria at that time, or for most leagues, seemed to be that you should start with a helmet. But you didn't have to continue with a helmet. And I would get the helmet off as quickly as possible and then go on to bat. And as I became an adult, I didn't wear a helmet at all. Very, very rarely. I didn't see myself as more courageous than the people at the other end without a helmet. My thing was that I just felt that because I didn't wear it all the time between the age of eight and 16, especially when I was batting longer innings, I was batting without a helmet. I just felt that I could see the ball slightly better without a helmet and I felt more comfortable without a helmet. I'd never been hit in the head either, um, which maybe would have changed things if I'd been hit in the head at at a young age. And so I never thought to myself, oh, I'm courageous Um, and, 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 and the other players aren't. I just thought that I was a player who liked not having one and, and the other players were players who felt more comfortable with it on. You know, the whole Viv Richards was so brave because he didn't wear a helmet. Yes, because I suppose he, he certainly got to a certain part of his career where he could have put a helmet on. My guess is he wouldn't have felt comfortable with it on. He, I, I think he would have felt a little bit constricted with it on. And I'm just basing that on players of my sort of age group who wore a helmet 50% of the time. There were some players who thought it was a statement not to wear a helmet. Uh, but there are a lot of other players who just said, I can see the ball better when I'm not wearing a um, uh, So I certainly, I'm not in a, in a situation where I'm thinking to myself um, uh, that that was the case. I, I think it, the, the interesting one is Richie Richardson and that because he does move to a helmet. And my guess is that he moved to a helmet at a point where he just wasn't seeing the ball well enough. And he maybe was getting rattled occasionally with a short ball. And I think with Viv Richards, he had built up a brand as, you know, one of the last players not to go to a helmet, that it would have been a bit awkward for him at that, even later on. And he probably should have worn a helmet in the last couple of years. You know, you hear about the Duncan Spencer spell and things like that. Um, I'm not saying Duncan Spencer wouldn't have roughed him up earlier in his career, but I think Viv would have handled it a little bit better. But yeah, and also a lot of it is about bravado, isn't it? And and everything else, Uh, you know, uh, Viv Richards, for those who don't know his full career, was a lot of what he did was performative. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Uh, in the same way that Shane Warne was performative, I'm trying to think of someone else, you know, th- those sorts of players where they are trying to beat you before they perform the act. And I think Viv Richards was very much part of that. Um, and I think that was also very much a part of that West Indies cricket culture. And that disappears. Um, what The last, he's not the only one. But the last player that I remember regularly facing medium face, medium fast, fast bowlers um, without a helmet was Ricky Ponting. And if you look at it, he probably, I'm not sure what his age is, but he's probably a couple of years older than me. He probably would have come from a similar era to me where he played with it and then he took it off and then he didn't play with it and, uh, you know, and maybe got more comfort, you know, and then when there was a fast bowler, maybe he'd bring it back on or a second new ball or, or whatever that may be. And I, again, don't remember thinking, oh, Ricky Ponting's so brave. I remember thinking Ricky Ponting probably just feels more comfortable uh, without it on, but more often than not, he wears it because, you know, the guys are bowling 80, 85 miles an hour at him. Um, the, the last professional players, just, just in a, as an aside, James, that I know of, and I'm using professional lightly, but they play international cricket, is the Bermudan team. They have a couple of brothers, I think, or maybe cousins uh, who don't wear the helmet and a couple of other players who also don't wear the helmet. And I chatted to some of them about it, uh, you know, one day at the hotel. And again, they said a very similar thing. When they grew up playing cricket, they didn't always have access to helmets. And when when we played against them and I did the d- due diligence, they were the players I told not to, uh, I, I told our players to bounce because I think they had grown up facing bowlers at 70, 75 miles an hour. And, you know, even the Scottish bowlers who are just that little bit quicker and sometimes taller, they cause them real problems with their short ball. In fact, to, to the point that, you know, before each game, we sort of, you know, especially with, with certain bowlers uh, like Ali Evans, you know, I would give a list of who you should bowl short to and who you shouldn't, you know, who you should try your bouncer with and who you shouldn't try your bouncer with. And he got confused because, you know, there were so many players with similar names and, and, and brothers and cousins and everything else. And I said, it's really simple. If you're playing against a Bermudan player and they have a helmet on, don't bounce them. And if they don't have a, a, a helmet on, do bounce them. So that sort of goes against, again, that um, 
you know, the, the courageous thing, it goes back to how you feel comfortable. The, I can't remember the last time I batted with a helmet on. It would be a very, you know, in England, because I grew up in Australia, you know, the ball gets above your shoulder a lot more. In England, I just can't remember the last time I did it. I would assume I'd feel very uncomfortable now um, if I went out and had to bat with a helmet. And if you've ever, you know, for people who lived in one era or the other, it's it's a slightly different one. But I think for people like me who grew up with it a little bit and without it a little bit, you know, you probably pick your favorites more. Um, there you go. Helmet talk. I love this podcast. Uh, Will says, is it just me or is the Root Silverwood regime's performance in Australia worthy of some reevaluation? England arguably did better in Australia than any team has done since, which is a lot to do with the Australian side just being really good. I don't know if it needs reevaluation. I, I mean, if you follow th this stuff, Will, you know that I don't tend to overreact or underreact to captains and coaching errors. Um, you know, occasionally you do see what's happened with Brendan McCullum, but more often than not, you know, the same things happened and just maybe you have your fit players available more often or you have an easier schedule or a harder schedule and you have injuries, whatever that may be. There's no doubt to say that England cricket has changed their thinking. I think it's crisper. I think they have better role definition before. Um, and also they are making the most of their strengths while trying to cover. There's still a lot of weaknesses there. So from that perspective, uh, none, very little of that was being done under the Silverwood era. I think I've said before that, you know, I thought Anderson and Broad bowled really well and Scott Boland took more wickets than the two of them combined or one less than the two of them combined. Um, and, you know, I'm a huge Scott Boland fan, but let's be real here. You know, there was certainly an age, of the, you know, a, a part of the procession. The one thing I'd say about longer tours, having talked to a lot of players from, you know, 1950s all the way through to modern time, there are tours that just slide and slide early and there's nothing you can do to pull them back. I would say that that was more of the case against a very good team who's very good at home. But England had been very poor for a long time. If you want to reevaluate that one tour, that's fine. I mean, I think you'll, you've will you probably seen some of my pieces on their batting. I started talking about their batting in, what, 2013? Maybe 20. I started talking about England's batting on the slide in 2012, in fact. So for me, it was a long time coming to you know change that up. I, I certainly wouldn't worry too much about one series. Bloody Bugger says, your choice of format of role, which player's legacy is hurt the most by the fact that they never played against their own teammates? Ooh, potential example. Uh, you recently mentioned Desmond Haynes as, as an ODI goat with Barra, but the best bowling attack at that time was the West Indies. Uh, yes, that was. I suppose you could put, I'm trying to think specifically of someone that would have been that case. I think, I think, Desmond Haynes was a pretty good player of pace bowling, though. So I'm trying to think if it would be someone else. So what you would what you would really want is Darren Lehman might be an interesting one uh, to go back and have a look at, a player who was probably at his best against the England nibbling ball and spin bowling. How would he have gone against sort of, you know, Lee Fleming, McGrath, Gillespie-era Australia? Uh, where maybe only Fleming is the only version. And even then, Fleming was probably quicker than most of those sorts of bowlers that you're going to go up against um, as well. That would have been quite interesting. Um, I'm trying to think if there are any others. Because what you're really looking for, I suppose, at that point is you would be like most South African batters, for instance, would be better against seam bowling, right? And so, you know, and that would be the case of, you know, what we've just said there with Desmond Haynes. I was thinking the same with someone like Matt Hayden, for instance. But then again, if you look at his shield record, you know, <laughs> he was pretty good against high-quality um, seam bowling in Australia as, as, as a rule. So, yeah, Darren Lehman comes out. I'm trying to think if there was anyone else. I, I do wonder what it would have been like for, and this is kind of the converse, of course, but, you know, someone like Dan Vittori, um, if, if he had played, uh, you know, more in Asia, what sort of a player Dan Vittori becomes. But if you're looking at someone who would have been worse, hmm, okay, what about bowling? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of players, I suppose, that come from the best teams that, you know, don't have to go up against the best teams. But very few of those best players are not also dominating. Bradman, Sheffield Shield record, is extraordinary. It's, you know, when and when specifically you talk about Bill O'Reilly, who... Clary Grimmett's probably the best 
maybe the best test bowler of the first part of Bradman's career. And then O'Reilly sort of takes over and becomes the best bowler. And O'Reilly was saying that, like, you know, Bradman was insane to bowl against. So I don't know. I, I understand the question. And Lehman, for whatever reason, Lehman really, really instantly um, springs to mind. But I'm not sure as a as an overall package how many players I could think of that might have had that as a, a problem because I do think it would have to be a player who specifically was very good against a different kind of player. I mean, you could say almost a lot of um, maybe a lot of the Indian and Sri Lankan spinners might have struggled more. Like how would Harbhajan have gone even bowling in India against you know more right-handers? That would be a really, really interesting thing to go against. But I, my guess is that Habajan was such a good bowler in India that that would not have been a problem. He probably wouldn't have wanted – maybe some of the Asian spinners specifically would not have wanted to bowl against their own batting lineups away from Asia where they had that advantage. Even then, I, I'm, I'm not sure that holds up as much as I, – I think it's a really good question. I'm not sure it holds up as much as uh, you think it would be. But – it, it might, that one might stick in my mind. We'll see, see if I can come up with something else there. Aditya says, in your discussion with Barrett regarding ODI goats, she talked about some players getting labeled as one format batters, even though their record and other formats is equally good. So it's about players like Amla. Do you think Lara fits in that bracket? His ODI record is often overlooked. It's a fairly long career. He averaged 40 with a strike rate of 80, playing in a fairly weak side. So it's, I didn't get to Lara. He was on my list. And what I was going to say about Lara is, I think you can make a fairly good argument that Lara was slightly better, or at least in the same argument as Ricky Ponting when it comes to one-day plays. He, I think Lara had innings where he was incredible. I never felt that Lara specifically played game after game in the way that Ponting and Tendulka did. In that it felt like they were very professional. They thought about one-day cricket as a far more serious thing than Lara did. And when I looked at him, I, I felt that. But then on the odd innings, there was, you know, brilliant innings. I'm trying to remember where it was. I feel like it was somewhere in Australia uh, where he took uh, Australia apart. There was another innings in, uh, there was South Africa in the semi quarterfinal of the 96. There were innings of Lara's that were just absolutely next level. But I'm, I agree with you. Um, uh, as a rule, I think, yeah, I think you're right. He is a player that we don't look at in that way. I think for his skill, well, I mean, I believe that just purely on batting talent, he was a better player than, you know, Ponting or Tendulkar. But I think that they had the ability to be more consistent and to, to you know, play to that level, but he had higher peaks. Um, and that's obviously the sort of player he was. We saw that in Test cricket as well, you know, uh, absolutely incredible from that from that side of things. So I think from that perspective, yes, I think I I do I do think he was unfairly mined. I th is the other possibility that the West Indies were on the wane during the majority of his career, especially the back half. I would have thought ninety two World Cup they don't make the semifinals. Ninety six World Cup did they make the semifinals? Ninety nine World Cup they don't. They win a Champions Trophy in there somewhere, maybe before it was called a Champions Trophy. Um, and by 2003, they're gone. So I wonder if part of that is just that West Indies are no longer a major part of one-day cricket conversation. Uh, remember, while Brian Lara was in the team, they lost to Kenya in 1996. Um, things were already a little bit on the slide um, at that point. Will says, do you know any players internationally, you know, intentionally bowling full tosses and hitting the batter around knee high at the death of T20s? They're looking incredibly hard to hit due to the ball coming down towards the batter when they're bowled accidentally they mostly go just for one or two they don't go for one or two uh i, I checked this i'm pretty sure with crickvis once it, the strike rate on full tosses is well over 11 or 12 runs and over, or around sorry yeah 11 uh, between 10 and 12 runs and over it's not that far off a free hit from memory that and that's that's the low legal full sources. I think that's right. I think that number holds up. There are certainly players who I, I remember Lassif Malinga. I think he was going at like eight runs for his full tosses compared to everyone else. But that's just because of the amount of dip he gets on the ball. So he's more like a baseball pitcher when it comes through. There was a theory, obviously, what pre Doni, I suppose, pre pre Dilshan and pre Doni that a low full toss was as good as a Yorker. You remember the commentators used to talk about it all the time. 
that is the point that they started. I, I think this comes through Sri Lanka in Indian cricket, that the, the toe ends of the bats, because the ball stays a little bit lower, were, were strengthened. Whereas traditionally, especially in, in South Africa and Australia, uh, the, the, if the ball hit that toe, it wouldn't go anywhere. That has completely changed in modern bats. Um, and, and and a lot of that, I, I would say, probably comes from you know people bowling Yorkers a lot more at the death. Um, and at that stage, people didn't have the shots to get up and under the full toss. And it was also before the lap shots. I think from the moment people have started lapping and everything else, um, and you have players playing their version of the helicopter shot uh, moving around and being able to get under very low full tosses, I don't think that is the case anymore well i would think that it's a, probably a fairly bad ball now um I, but i haven't i can't remember the last time i checked it it was two or three years ago i i'd be shocked if it's changed uh, but maybe one more one for crick Fizz than for me although not for freddie wild because he's now the england analyst uh so he could probably still answer it but probably won't uh, renee says with the women's ipl now being the second most expensive um uh cricket league and also the second most expensive women's sports league. Do you see women's cricket spreading the game to different parts of the world better than men's cricket? Definitely. I'm not sure it's the second most expensive league, cricket league, is it? I would have thought that major league cricket would have earned more before even their uh, TV rights, I would think. Uh, but I suppose it won't be far off major league. Um, anyway, um, so let's call it secondly. Um, um, certainly, you know, certainly, you know, I was, I was saying with Barrett the other day that, I think it would be the second most important sports women's league um, outside of, you know, women's football in the world. I think it'll beat the WNBA quite comfortably. Uh, so do I see? Yeah, I do. I've, I've been saying it for a long time, Renee, that women's cricket is a great way to do this. I mean, the Brazilian model was probably the best model where they looked at both their teams and went, well, our women are much better than our men. Let's put our money into our women. I do think that associate teams will do that more and more going ahead. I suppose we've seen that at times with like you, you know, American soccer, football, whatever you want to call it, in other cultures, uh, looking at that that way. And I think that would certainly happen. Also, fair break, as it currently stands, is in a position to make stars out of women from random places in a way that really the men's game is still not ready for because the women's game is not quite as developed yet and there aren't as many professionals. And it means that, I don't know, if you were a really good woman from you know, Uruguay who happen to be able to hit sixes all the time, you know, learnt it on YouTube and just can smack them. It would be not easy, but certainly I could see how teams, you know, if you got into fair break and you hit a bunch of sixes, you could probably break into some of the major leagues. Um, and so again, you know, I think there are many different ways that women could make a living off cricket. Um, and certainly from the international point of view, I could see why teams would do that on the lower levels. Um, and then from a league point of view, if the I if this is a big deal, the women's IPL, not just money, but also attention and, you know, moving things forward, if you had young women from around the world, they're going to look at it as a profession, right? And up until recently, you probably only thought about women's cricket if you're a profession, if you were a strain in English. Then obviously the sort of the leagues came in and started I thought, well, if I'm the in the best five cricketers in my country, I'm a chance of being a league cricketer. That could move further and further very, very quickly. Bannard says, How strict is copyrighted how strict is copyrighted content from cricket all around the world? Could we expect a page of a house of highlights for, for basketball um in cricket? No, um Manon, no, I would say that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say it's the most strict. It is not far off. You know, I remember every every new IPL, there's this great Twitter account that will come up and it'll be going, and this guy, you can see he's flicking this finger and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. And I'm like, yeah, but they're going to take that down. And they usually do. Uh, you need multiple accounts, multiple platforms to stay ahead of them. You know, it's really, really strict. You have to know the rules, but no one tells you the rules. So you have to know people. And then those people change jobs. And uh, I, look, I've written about this a lot before. I think cricket has made a massive error in restricting the amount of footage that you can put up online, especially as a fan, um, especially if it's educational, especially if it's entertaining. Like if I was a cricket board, I, obviously I don't want two hours of highlights um, going up. But let, let so they, what the cricket boards will say is, well, we own that and we can't monetize it. Well, I don't agree with that because the, if, if you put it up on, on YouTube, the way to do it is um, that if you own that, instead of getting it taken off YouTube, actually what you can do is if, if I put a video up of, I don't know, 
Jasper Brummer Bowling 10 Yorkers, right? I can put the video up on my channel. And if I get a sponsor for my channel, I can put the logo there. But if I have ads available that, uh, or if I'm on YouTube, then, uh, then the, co- the person with the copyright should be able to make any money off the Google advertising from that or turn it off so that you can't advertise it, but you're actually promoting the game for free. Those are all options. I, there's something like that with the NBA. I, I don't remember the full detail of it. That's what we should be doing. We should be flooding the market with cricket highlights. I think there's a real reason you see so many clips of the European cricket and club cricket online. It's part of the reason is because if you put actual clips of cricket up, they get taken off. It's so stupid, but I have written about it many times before. Before I was a YouTuber and it mattered to me because it's so stupid that something happens in in you know in baseball or basketball or football and there's highlights of it everywhere. Um, and in cricket, the only highlights we have are the official thing, and they don't always capture the right thing, and they don't understand the, the fans' energy, which is why people like Roy Belinda are so huge. We should be encouraging that, not doing the opposite. Well, man, and again, is there any place to watch old cricket matches in their entirety? Do you know what? The ICC um, Facebook page used to have old games, and they took them down. I don't know of anywhere else. Sometime, no. I don't know of anywhere else. I certainly haven't found them. So if you find them, Manon, uh, feel free to send them through to me. Uh, James says, what are the most aesthetically pleasing grounds you have watched um, at? And uh, which one would you like to visit? Aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, I'm not. I kind of like stadiums. <laughs> so it's probably going to sound weird, but I like Eden Gardens is like one that certainly for me has, I, I maybe because I grew up in Melbourne and, you go, you know, in Melbourne has so many big stadiums that, uh, or that we let one go, <laughs> became, became, a, became a housing estate. We didn't need the other 80,000-seat stadium. So I grew up there, so I, I really like stadiums from that perspective. Um, you know, the bigger the better. So Eden Gardens for me is great. Trentbridge always had a big affection for Trentbridge. In fact, if you haven't, we just did a Double Century podcast that came out last week or the week before uh, about the pink polka dots, uh, which is about William Clark, who – uh, was a publican who owned the Trent Bridge Inn at the front, if you've ever been to that ground, and just built a cricket ground out the back because he he had a franchise team in the 1830s, 1840s. Um, incredible person, incredible player as well, um, uh, and built something that has lasted forever in cricket. I love that ground. Something about it. I love the walk to it. Um, I love the vibe at that ground. I can't even tell you what it is that I enjoy about it, but I ha- always have the odd shape trying to think of any others um that have like i have an emotional connection oh p sarah in sri lanka in fact i was looking through a bunch of photos of my career the other day uh for i've, I've released my sports writing course um of which hopefully we'll remember to put a link in here but it's uh if you put in fans with laptops and you want to do that course we've now put all the multimedia stuff up but i had to we're doing a video about it and i had to find all the things and at p sarah they have a chalkboard with the review, DRS, how many team reviews? And I love that that they were actually mapping the technology of cricket with a chalkboard. It's it's just it's almost like a club ground. But I absolutely loved everything about it. It, it really felt um, incredible incredible for me to go back to. Uh, sorry, to go to um, as a you know to go from an international ground to that. In fact, the ground at Candy is great, sort of in a in a basin. Obviously, Cape Town is something, although. People don't talk about this, but sometimes Cape Town stinks because of the the brewing of the beer smell. Trying to think of any others I've been to that I really enjoyed from that. um, Obviously, Darren Mashal is incredible, the background, but also, you know, the way that you get to the ground, the walk around it and everything else. I'm kind of a walk to it person (laughs) as much as anything else. Trying to think if there's any others that stand out to me. Um, Yeah, I think those are the ones off the top of my head um, that, that, yeah, that I really, really like. I'm trying to think if there's a West Indies one. Oh, that, again, I, and this is like not going to be for everyone, but there's something about the St. Kitts um, and Nevis ground that, and the Guyana ground, in fact, that I just really like. They just felt like organic, I suppose is the word. Um, and perhaps and perhaps there's something to the fact that I like those sorts of grounds. Um, but yeah, certainly that is, that is one that I'm... Um, the, the, or those are two that I really enjoy, but also the crowds and the way that the crowds um, specifically um, support their teams. Cameron says, is there any evidence to support the idea of sledging and getting into the batter's head? No, there's no evidence. I mean, I'd be shocked if it didn't work on certain occasions, but I'd also be shocked if on many different occasions it did the exact opposite. There are plays you do not want to sledge. 
you know, in any sport or, or, or have banter with. And I think there is a man called Ruffy, Ruffy Cohan, American writer who contacted me about sledging and cricket. He's, he's, he was doing something about trash talk. And I think, you know, specifically probably basketball um, is maybe one of the most famous. And then obviously someone along the line said to him, do you think basketball's bad? <laughs> Wait till you come up across cr- cricket and you did a lot on Australian sledging. Um, I haven't read the chapter, so I'm not sure exactly uh, where he is with that. But if you told me it affected players overall, I would say that some players would probably be affected by it negatively and some players would be um, affected by it positively. <laughs> um, and many it wouldn't affect at all. But I don't know if there's a way, Cameron, to even work that out. Uh, Renee says, should the IPL have a promotion relegation system uh, once it eventually becomes too big? And look, it's never going to. I think it's more aimed on the American model. And the American model is partly they are they are buying into the fact that they are never going to be relegated. I mean, if you ask me, it, I think promotion and relegation is a better system than, you know, uh, what's happened with the... Um, Sacramento Kings in basketball, although they're having a very good year, light up that beam. But Indiana Pacers and Sacramento Kings, they're kind of stuck in this middle period that they never have to worry about. Um, That's why I love promotion and relegation. But I don't think the IPL is ever going to be that league. I don't think we'll see that because most of these leagues need buy-in from the owners to begin with. And so why would you buy into a league where you could end up being in the B League? I personally wouldn't do that. So I I can see why that uh, probably won't ever happen. Ian says, great crossover episode with Dan on fairness. Totally agree that cricket isn't at all fair and all the better and more quirky for it. As regards to Pollard, etc., and running one short to keep the strike, though, how short can you be? Am I right that the umpire has the ability to disallow both runs if he believes that it to be deliberate? He does now, Ian. That comes from uh, Kyron Pollard doing that. He wasn't the first player to do it. So for those, I'll try and explain it. Imagine Kyron Pollard is batting with a tail end up and he has towed the ball out to long off and it's um and he realizes that he's only going to be able to get one for it what Kyron Pollard was doing is instead of going all the way to the end and trying to steal two he was actually crossing with the batter coming up about two meters short and then sprinting back to the other end that was an obvious flaw in the game and clearly the umpire would call one short yeah, that my other short uh, clearly the umpire would call one short but the problem being there is that you're calling one short but all Pollard really wanted to do was make sure he got one run from the ball um, and got the strike back. And so that was um, that was very much uh, going to be done. Uh, David Hooks is the old, oldest story I know of that happening, but I'm sure that it happened earlier in cricket as well, where players worked out that um, loophole in the laws. And, and it, you know, it's weird that the MCC hadn't cracked down on that, but maybe it just hadn't happened enough. Christopher says, the T20 domestic league sometimes don't get the coverage it needs to do from journalists because their preference will often be for test cricket and internationals. I listen to a few podcasts and the coverage is often very good, but I get less insight for the leagues and international game. You still get paid a lot more money to cover international cricket. Uh, that's one reason. It's much harder to cover the league cricket. Um, uh, usually it's more junior journalists. I do think there is a part of it that is the international side of it. it or not the international side of it, the, the more prestige. But there really isn't a lot of money in covering those leagues at the moment. Um, the best way to see this is you don't see a lot of journalists uh, jumping from league to league to league. If I can't think of anyone who does that regularly. I think that's what f- someone like Freddie Wilde probably wanted early in his career, and he couldn't really make that work. I certainly could never make that work. Um, you know, I had this vision of you know being able to go to the Big Bash, the PSL, and then uh, the um, IPL um, instead of international cricket. I've just never been. I've, in fact, I've very rarely ever been paid to write about um, league cricket, and I've worked in leagues, so I do think there's a market inefficiency there, and I I wonder when that switches over. The other thing I would say is just because the way that T20 cricket works, I don't. I think there's too much disposable is the wrong word, but I think there's too often in in T20 cricket where fans are not trained to follow the entire league. They kind of watch the game and. And disappear and watch the game and disappear i think fantasy cricket fans are probably slightly different and there's obviously a few hardcore t20 fans out there but as a overall um uh thing you know going ah two nights back this happened i'm not sure that t20 fans are trained in in that way to to consume their cricket that way yet and that's also because of the things you've talked about certainly newspapers would say to you that they don't get many reads um there are certain places that have done very well with getting T20 coverage, and even they don't usually get big sponsors from it. So it's a tricky 
position that it's in at the moment. But I definitely agree with you that the coverage of it is nowhere near. It frustrates the hell out of me how little coverage there is of uh, of the major T20 leagues. And actually, maybe more so the minor ones. Uh, I'm going to go and have a look at a few questions um, uh, for you. Um, but first, let us play. As, and well, and while I do that, I should say, let me play an ad, and I'll go through it and see if there's any more questions uh, that I can answer in the chat. There's a couple of super chats, of course, which now I can't tell which ones are the super chats because they all come up the same. Oh no, here it is, dovetail. Uh, so if you do want your question 100% answered because it's so important, uh, then uh, you have that option. Dovetail says, how much of an advantage is it for a great player uh, on a good team compared to a great player in a bad or weak team? I suppose it depends on what kind of player you are and what kind of weakness that team has. The, the One of the good ones is Burt. Oh, no, it's not Burt Sutcliffe. Why have I forgotten? John Reed from New Zealand. If you talk to players of that era, they really talk up John Reed. I think he might have even captained an international 11 at one stage or certainly was he was thought to be one of the best players in the world. And you look at his record and you would look at it and go, what? And I think in John Reed's case, he probably would have been an ideal player to, I'm trying to think of the sort of player he would have been, to bat at maybe number six in a sort of Botham style. Um, I think he was probably a better bat than Botham, but in that kind of, you know, attacking number six role behind a strong team. And he bats as high as four, I think, maybe even three at times. And he did that behind no openers. So he's batting He's batting at you know, number four, number five. I think John Reed never won a test match. I think that's right. Might have been Burt Sutcliffe. One of them didn't, anyway. Um, but it, let's say you, you're, you're, you're John Reed and you're supposed to be batting at number six, and that would be your best spot in a really good team. You're now batting at number four, and your team doesn't have a very good one, two, or three. So you're going to be in even earlier. In that case, John Reed's overall average has to be affected by that. And how often can he come in and smack the ball hard like he wants to? He's playing out of position and then playing out of role definition. So I do think you get positions players like that. That is probably more for the players who are just beneath that sort of GOAT level. I think if you're a GOAT level player, I, I shouldn't say that, but you put it. Did you put GOAT? No, I just made it up. That was even worse. Sorry, Dufta. Uh, but if you're that sort of great level player, so like Andy Flower, Andy Flower, probably in a really good team, maybe still you want to bat him at five or six, but Andy Flower, obviously good enough to bat three or four um, as well. Uh, good enough's the wrong way. His skills were um, diverse enough to be able to bat at three or four or five, six, seven, where in a way that Bracewell wasn't. So I don't think it affects Andy Flower as much, um, and you can see that from his record. If you're a bowler, you can argue in some ways if you're a great bowler. And again, we are if we're talking about great players here, you're probably going to end up with a fantastic record when it comes to percentage of wickets. So Fazal Mahmood, Richard Hadley, uh, Murali, all great bowlers, right? But their numbers look a lot better than Joel Garner's numbers um, do or that Shane Warnes do because they had the ability to take so many five-wicket hauls and probably cash in. And, you know, you've got, uh, every time you've got, um, you've got to take a wicket, they go in. That, that's, so in that way, m maybe they're, they're probably getting extra wickets per game than you wouldn't be. But I do think there are situations when being a great player on a good team is a hindrance or Sorry, being a great player on a good team maybe is not a hindrance, but your skills maybe don't shine as bright uh, as they would. Like if, I don't know, Jason Gillespie is an Australian great player. He's not an all-time great, probably because of the, what happened at the end of his career, but he was certainly you know, one of the best bowlers that Australia's ever had. But he was also the third best bowler in that team. He might have at times been fighting to be the number one best bowler in that team but he's never going to be remembered that way so you you slip down automatically i think in the way that you are seen but having said that it would be really interesting to see how good jason gillespie would have been if he had been the number one bowler on that team rather than the third best bowler whereas if you swap him and joel garner my guess is that if jason gillespie is playing for the west indies team Actually, maybe that doesn't work. I'm trying to think. So Joel Garner is a great player on a, a great team. And again, he's a bit like, he's actually very similar to Gillespie. I'm trying to think of another player who maybe, you know, who gets a ride because of it. Because that's what you're really looking at. A player who maybe wouldn't have been 
that good. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question. Um, you talk about Lara and Sachin in the nineties, but yeah, I think I think from that perspective, you'd probably rather be that. Uh, I think if you're a bowler, if you're a bowler, it probably and you're a great bowler probably doesn't matter as much because you're getting individual wickets that's not to say that you can't get pressure from the other end but there's other ways of pressuring from the other end uh, as richard hadley's teammates and and um uh, uh, murley's teammates certainly still helped their bowling whereas batting i think if you a if you look at lara maybe more so because of the kind of pitches he played on how often was lara in too early um when that's really not when you want lara to be in compared to if he played with great openers in front of him for a long, for an extended period. You'd think there would have been an impact there. That's so ask another one. Uh, why didn't Ireland and Scotland develop into cricket nation as compared to Asian countries, as they had more opportunity to play against England, and I believe they had access to English domestic cricket? Part of the reason is because they were sort of folded into English cricket at a time. You know, Douglas Jardine is Scottish, right? And Ian Peebles is Scottish. So they had very very good players who wouldn't even go on to play for scotland so that was one of scotland's bigger problems in scotland specifically uh, well, the, the other thing you need to know about that you know scotland and ireland they're almost two different situations in scotland my understanding of it is that cricket was very much a sport played by people f- from elite backgrounds which is not the overall population and then you have a small population to begin with so you're not picking from the entire country already um, and a lot of that was probably anti-english sentiment would be my guess in Ireland, they had a rule against um, cricket by the uh, GAA, which is the Gaelic Athletic Association, I think, if I'm remembering all my details, dovetail off the top of my head, uh, which made it very hard for you to play cricket and, well, no, actually, it made it impossible for you to play cricket and uh, one of the Gaelic sports, which is Gaelic football and the other ones, the one with the sticks. Um, and there's probably two others that I've forgotten. I think there's like four of them, isn't there? Um, and so, and then also the anti-English um, sentiment, again, was a big, big deal there. You know, there was a period where a lot of Irish cricketers felt uncomfortable with that. But remember, Ireland were really good at cricket and had a lot of very good players. And my guess is that Scotland did as well. But I do think being involved with England also made it a bit of a problem because your best players would disappear, uh, you know. And then a lot of the best Irish players probably... Alec O'Rourdon, um, uh, there's a lot of really good players that they produce, didn't get county contracts, so they probably didn't develop the way they should have. Whereas maybe towards the 70s and 80s, you start to see a couple of Ireland players come in. Obviously, Ed Joyce sort of starts a revolution, really, in that way. So there's a big development. I, I saw, I played club cricket with Ed Joyce when he was 18, 19, I want to say. At that stage, I don't think he played county cricket. Watching Ed Joyce play at that stage, and if he'd never played county cricket, I don't think he would have been anywhere near the player he was. He was not much better than – I mean, he didn't make any runs in Australian club cricket as, as, as a guy who was, you know, as I said, 18, 19 years old. I bowled to him quite a lot, and I bowled to a lot of first-class players and a lot of very good club players. He's not on my list of the hardest people I had to bowl to, and he's a left-hander. He did smack me a few times, but not in the way that you would expect a player of that quality to get on top of me. So I, I certainly think from that perspective um i think they had the talented players and they weren't developing the other thing i would uh, say is that cricket hadn't didn't develop in the same way in as it did in asia as it did in 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 those two countries and the other thing i would mention is weather (laughs) which i don't think we can ever um completely uh you know it's very wet in scotland pretty wet in ireland too Greeny says, would you agree that subcontinent cricket culture is a tad polarizing and in your face? They take everything too seriously and can't handle classic banter. Well, I mean, most banter is just someone being an arsehole, if we're being honest, Greeny. Uh, I've said for a long time that West Indies fans are the most passionate, the most angry, uh, the most harsh on their players, but there's no, no one there. There's no one in the islands. I think one of the reasons, that especially that um, Indian fans seem uh more polarizing and in your face is because there's 1.3 or 1.4 billion Indian people. I would say that also we're living in this era now where the Indian men's cricket team is still, you know, one of the biggest things in India that, you know, the Sri Lankan men's cricket team is the same, the Pakistan men's cricket team, um, Bangladesh men's cricket team, not so much the women, although they're on their rise as well. And so there was a time, have a look at how Australia handled body line. So there was certainly a time when we saw similar things like that happen uh, in other cricket cultures. But 
you know, the Australian men's team just isn't as important into uh, regular Australian culture as the as some of these teams are to the Asian uh, parts of thing. I don't expect that to be the case for, forever. Um, and there was a time when you know the New Zealand men's team was incredibly important to New Zealand culture. That's certainly not the case anymore. But yeah, so from that perspective, uh, look, I just think it has a different part. But I think that's how England people thought about Australians um, uh, quite a while ago. And I'm guessing, Greeny, that you are an Australian. So kind of tells you how these things change. Um, and at different times, your team is going to be more important. Carl says, never understood why the BCCI doesn't allow Indian players to play in T20 leagues abroad. Surely players who aren't in the national team could use the experience and pay. Yes. I mean, obviously, it's an IPL thing about making more money, but it doesn't really ma- it doesn't really make a lot of sense from a talent development um, standpoint. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the IPL about how they want to make India the best team in the world. Not allowing your players to, uh, to play in other leagues would seem to be, at the moment, not helping with that get, um, aim. And, you know, we're certainly seeing West Indies and now England using the other leagues to your advantage. And, and I've talked about it before in one of my videos on, you know, why India struggle in World Cups. There's ways of doing it that are different than what happened with the West Indies and also different to even how England are doing it. I, I believe in the future there will be people who work at boards whose job it is to get players into different leagues. I'm available for that position, by the way. Mahidi Sanj, uh, Shanaka and Bracewell, why Indian bowlers give up when someone is attacking and what's the solution to that? That's cricket. They don't give up. They probably run out of options. <laughs> it's just a thing that happens. Yeah, they don't give up. If you're thinking any, there are players out there giving up, players are the most competitive people that you will meet. In conversation, they're competitive. This whole idea that you know you see them bowling bad and you think they've given up. We've got to start thinking that's not how things are. They might have run out of ideas. They may not be uh, on a good pitch. They may not be in a situation that's uh, using the best of their advantage. But they, as far as I've seen, they do not give up. And that's players of any country. Um, they might get tired. They might not be fit enough. <laughs> as Jad says, uh, what is the revenue model for the UAE T- T10? I don't know. I don't know the revenue models for a lot of these leagues. I know that they sell their betting rights, so I don't know if it's something to do with that. Um, I don't know how much money they need to sustain from what I would think to be very low TV rights, if that's enough to make it. There's a lot of leagues in T20 cricket and T10 cricket where I do not understand how they exist and how they continue to exist. I think in some, one thing I would say is I think in some cases it is a long-term play. You're not really supposed to make money on the first two, three, four years. Really is, you know, developing your product. If you get to the four or five year mark, you should be able to kick on. Although we have seen leagues like CPL struggle to do that. Uh, What else have we got here? Jay says, Hasaranga hasn't been effective in ODIs compared to T20s, especially in away games where he averages 80 with the ball in 14 innings. Is the lack of good leg break, top spinner a problem? I, I, I think that he is very well set up for when people come at him very hard. You know, it's a different kind of one, one day bowling is a different kind of bowling than T20 bowling. If players aren't coming at you as hard, they can probably milk you a lot more. And perhaps uh, it is, you know, he, if you think about what he's doing in T20 cricket, it's very subtle. And it's very T20 orientated. He's bowling with a low arm action, trying to hit the top of off stump or trying to hit the top of leg stump. Um, in one day cricket, you can milk and, and move him around. Whereas T20 cricket, you're trying to hit out and eventually he's going to slide one through you um, one way or the other and get and dismiss you. That's not the case um, in one day cricket. And I, I think they dip. some bowlers will have the skill set to be able to bowl both naturally and some won't. Like I'm not sure Samuel Badgery would have been a great one day bowler. I hope he doesn't have a great one-day record. I've forgotten it. But my memory is he doesn't. Uh, Anav says, what, uh, why do you think RCB have done so bad in the IPL considering their star lineups? I think their star lineups are part of the problem. I think they got obsessed with star culture rather than actually trying to fit a good team together. I think they had a very bad ownership structure to begin with. I was briefly involved with their second ownership structure. I thought that was a bit of a madhouse as well, though a lot better than the first one was. I think... They may, tried to make, very, I think at one stage they were trying to make very sound data-led decisions and then on one side of the business and on the other side of the business, um, uh, they were going with what Virat said or who Virat trusted. And I think those two things were very much at end uh, with each other. I don't think Virat ever had the time to fully develop into, I, I just don't think he was thinking about each individual game the way that he should have been from my um, understanding of what happened there, uh, you know, being very, very um, tangentially involved in them. And I also don't think that he thought about T20 cricket in the way that perhaps it needed to be thought about. But I really do think a lot of it was star players and not thinking about role players. And the other one was 
it's very rare that I, I've looked at their bowling lineup and thought that is a solid bowling lineup all the way through, which is obviously another issue. But they probably, because it's been so long, they probably had many different issues over the times. Uh, Shramama says, if you're aware of the history of that region, Shakib and Lytton being the only Bengals in the team, what do you think the importance of that is to KKR fans? I think it's interesting from a cricket perspective that the that they're Bangl- Bangladeshis. Lytton's overall record, I'm not saying he was picked solely because of that, because I think that innings against India certainly played a part. But it'd be interesting if that is something in the marketing that is quite important. But I also think if you're really going to develop this into a proper league, and you know, we're still a way away from that. It's still quite a short pop-up kind of league. But if it's really going to develop into, you know, quite a great league, then, you know, and eventually they will get rid of overseas restrictions. I think it has to mature beyond, you know, you want the local boys playing. It's always great. You know, it doesn't matter what league you're watching in the world. It's great when a local boy does well for a team. But I think we know now enough about sports that that's not necessarily why people tune in. And I think as this league matures, that will mean less. It would be interesting to know if Lytton went there specifically, though. Not specifically, but at least in any part because of um, his background. 42 to Jat 42 says, given how popular they are, when is 99.94 setting up its T20 league? We won't be setting up our own league, but we will be trying to cover them in the future, if that's what you mean. Uh, but we're still a ways off that. We haven't done all the international teams. We could have very easily started by covering county cricket or the IPL. It just happened to be that when we were starting the business, the World Cup was coming. So we went with that. Um, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't us slamming the leagues. I would, I, as I said, I would have happily started with county cricket. Um, the business model works for anything in that in, in that way. I think I have done everything else. Uh, I'll just finish up with this one from Max because it's interesting to me. What's with WA and batting all rounders? Marsh, Stoinis, Cartwright, Cam Green, and now Hardy. You can go back to Tom Moody, probably John and Verity. Who else am I missing? Brad Hogg batted at six in a star-studded um, West Indies line, uh, West Indies Western Australian lineup when he started as well. If if you also want uh, wicket keepers, um, they've had Luke Ronke and Ryan uh, Campbell. Obviously, Adam Gilchrist came from somewhere else. Yeah, it's interesting. I can't think of anything specific. You know, with the West, with, when South Africa, someone asked a similar question with South Africa once, and I wondered if it was a situation where their coaching is so good and precise that even when you're a natural bowling talent. I, I look at Rabada. Rabada clearly is not a great bat, but he still has a very, very good technique compared to most tail enders. I wonder if there is something within the um, the way that cricketers are produced in South Africa, if even their bowlers end up with fairly good batting training. I mean, even Mornay Morkel had a decent technique. Uh, couldn't bat. but So I, I wonder if a similar thing has happened in uh, Western Australia where there's a reason for that. I can't think of any reason why that should be the case, though. It could just be dumb luck. But, you know, going to, well, from John Enverarity all the way through to who's the most recent, who do you have? Hardy? It certainly seems to be a pattern there um, that you don't see really strongly in other Australian cricket cultures. I can't think of a reason off the top of my head, but great question. Uh, great questions, everyone. Really enjoyed uh, the chat. If you're interested in the sports writing course, as I said, uh, Google fans with laptop, Jared Kimber, you can see it. And uh, I will talk to you again soon. Oh, thanks to um, um, uh, to Bodyline T-shirts as well. This is my favorite body. Oh, I can't even show it because of the microphone. But this is WG Grace in a pedalo. One of the few cricket T-shirts that I am wearing to w- wear outside of a cricket environment just because of how much I, I love the design of it um, and how there's like about 12 people in the world who will get that joke. And I enjoy it even more because of that. Anyway, thank you for coming on. Remember, you can listen to this on the normal podcast feed. If you want ad-free, you can sign up to our Patreon, but you can also listen to this podcast on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitter now. And thank you to everyone. But subscribe, retweet, share, tell everyone, and we'll be back again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. 
You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs> <laughs>